Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined on this Friday, the 19th of November, uh, by my podcasting partner and Pillar co founder, Ed Condon. Ed, how you, how's it? I'm feeling old, JD. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I'm man enough to admit it. Uh, I'm feeling old. You're feeling old. I'm feeling my age. Yeah, you're feeling your age. Well, what you mean by that, I suppose, is um, uh, you asked me earlier in the day if I felt hungover, and uh, and effectively I said yes, although I wasn't. Um, yeah, and I, I think- know, to be clear, I wasn't drinking last night, but I, I woke up this morning just feeling physically punished. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that, you know, Ed and I, and we'll talk about this in this episode of the Pillar Podcast, Ed and I spent this week at the um, fall the fall 2021 Plenary Assembly of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the fall meeting of the OCCB. And, you know, that's, uh, I mean, we're just there, you know, I got there Sunday night. I, I don't can't remember if you came up Sunday night or not. Oh, you came up Sunday night. That's right. We got there Sunday night. We were there till Thursday, midday or morning. But, um, it's a go 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 event, and uh, you know we're not we're not kids anymore, buddy. No, no, it, we're not. I <laughs> and we have been like all people. We have not been to a USCCB meeting in two years because the USCCB meetings have been on camera uh, for two years, and this was the first in person assembly of the USCCB since November two thousand nineteen, two years ago. So a lot of things happened, a lot to talk about, but it is true that you know you're kind of running around because you, you sort of start your day. We probably, I probably each day of the thing, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday morning, I probably had my first sort of meeting with somebody at 6.30 or something like that. And then, you know, uh, work, 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 meet with people, meet with sources. You're not just working on stuff that you're working on to cover the USCCB, but you have a concentrated mass of people who are in, if you're, if you're us, if you're a journalist who covers the Catholic Church, you have a concentrated mass of people who are in your beat, so to speak. And so you're meeting with people who, um, for whom conversations are relevant to stories that are not happening at the USCCB, but long-term things. And so having those conversations and then doing something called networking, which sounds silly, but is important to us because our, a big part of our job is knowing people and knowing uh, how to, how to uh, get information, you know, find out the scoop, so to speak. So networking and reaching out to people. And a lot of that is fun and, and having fun and hanging out. But, you know, you could easily do sort of six thirty to one, if you're not careful and then do it again and then do it again. And then, uh, yeah. Like it's, and we're not we're not kids anymore. We're not no. as young no, as we not. once was. No, but what you say but is I'm true. As young I mean, as I am. if the reason you're going to the USCCB meeting is to cover what happens at the USCCB meeting, you're wasting your time. You could you could do that. You over could Zoom. do that over Zoom. <laughs> Perhaps not yeah. not entirely as well, but you could do that over Zoom pretty close to as well. Yeah, the utility of the meeting is getting to talk to people about stuff that's got nothing to do with what's happening at the conference, but is longer term, bigger picture, more interesting. And that's what the real utility of it is, at least for me. That's right. Well, I am very grateful to our um, to our readers and listeners and subscribers because uh, we were able to be in Baltimore. And of course, we're able to do any of this because of our subscribing community. So if you are a listener to the Pillar podcast and a reader of the Pillar and you like what we've been up to, then by all means, of course, um, consider becoming a subscriber to the Pillar, pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe, end of pitch. Uh, it was a great meeting. There was just a lot to talk about. Well, it was a very interesting meeting. There was a lot going on. There's a lot to talk about. And I think we should jump into it with the uh, the bishop's approval of um, the mystery of the Eucharist 
what is the name of this document? The Mystery of the Eucharist. At the heart of the, the church, the mystery of the Eucharist in the heart of the the mystery of the Eucharist in the life of the church, the mystery of the Eucharist in the life of the church, a uh, a document, um, a catechetical document on the Eucharist and um, its mysteriousness. No, it's uh, the uh, uh, its presence and meaning and significance, its sacramentality um, as it relates to the communion of the baptized, which is the church. This is what we have been calling now for the six or seven or eight months that we've been talking about it, the Bishop's Eucharistic Coherence Document. We we reported in February that there had been talk about it and the bishops were discussing that they would do this and that it seemed like they would be moving forward with this. And then in March, Archbishop Gomez, I suppose, confirmed that reporting in a manner speaking by uh, sending a memo to bishops of the United States, um, letting them know that uh, a working group that he had put together to respond to the challenges of the um, Biden presidency had recommended a document be developed on Eucharistic coherence. And by that, they meant the question of sort of who should or should not receive Holy Communion, should a pro-abortion Catholic politician be admitted to Holy Communion, who should be prohibited from Holy Communion, these kinds of things. And it did, you know, that recommendation um, for a document on Eucharistic coherence came from this working group that Archbishop Gomez put together on Biden. And as a consequence of that, most of the last year in the church, the news about the U.S. church has been about this document um, and people's takes on that, which have varied widely, you know, perspectives that the U.S. bishops are going to ban Biden from Holy Communion. Uh, the U.S. bishops are going to ban Biden and Pelosi from Holy Communion. The bishops are going to weaponize the Eucharist. Or on the other side, the bishops don't have the guts um, or temerity to follow through on the teachings of the church and ban Biden from Holy Communion. I mean, there have been takes all over the all over the planet on this. And um and most of them not really connected to what was actually going on. What was actually going on is that this working group had suggested that the doctrinal committee just develop a, a statement that kind of explained um, why a person might not be admitted to Holy Communion because of his public positions in public life. But it was never the case that the USCCB would be able to prohibit someone from Holy Communion because the USCCB doesn't have that authority. And if you've been listening to that this show, you know that. Well, here's what actually ha- – here's what happened kind of after the doctrine committee made that recommendation. Um I interviewed uh, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, the chairman of the Doctrine Committee, yesterday. I'll be publishing that interview as soon as I finish working on it. Um, and uh, and I said to him, you know, help me understand kind of the timeline here. Because um, at first there was a lot of talk uh, among the bishops that the document was going to be on Eucharistic coherence, this question of Eucharistic worthiness, these kinds of things. That's how it was played in the press, et cetera, et cetera. And then the bishops started saying, no, actually this began before that with our strategic plan and, and our desire and our strategic plan to offer catechesis on the Eucharist and to have a Eucharistic Congress, a big gathering of, the, of, of people to uh, venerate and adore the Holy Eucharist in 2024. And really we had planned on a document because of our strategic plan. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me because it seemed obvious to me that the notion of a document on Eucharistic coherence had kind of come out of um, this working group of Archbishop Gomez and these kinds of things. So I asked Bishop Rhodes to explain it to me, and he said, here's here's what, here's what the deal. The strategic plan, which is kind of the document that um, sets out for the bishops what all of it, the offices of the USCCB should be up to, um, it's kind of a, th- they, they make a new one every three years, but basically the game plan for how they'll spend their time, personnel, and money. Um, the one for 2021 to 2024 called for a Eucharistic Congress in 2024, a big gathering in 2024, and the development of what it says, like catechetical resources and materials to support this notion of a Eucharistic Congress. And so the, I asked Bishop Rhodes, explain to me why these guys are now saying strategic plan when there's the, the strategic plan does not say, we'll develop a document on Eucharistic coherence, which seemed to be what I was hearing. And Bishop Rhodes said, well, listen, the Doctrine Committee was talking about how we should support the strategic plan. 
and uh, this notion of catechetical materials. And so we decided that if a lot of catechetical materials were going to be developed, um, or, or not even we decided, actually, we were talking about the notion that if a lot of catechetical materials were going to be developed, and if there were going to be speakers and other things, and we're going to be doing a lot of work towards this Eucharist to Congress videos and such, it would probably be good for the Doctrine Committee to put together a sort of catechetical framework on the Eucharist, a document that would express the Church's teachings on the Eucharist, um, you know, to use as a sort of baseline and a guide and these kinds of things. And he said it was something that they had just talked about. And then uh, when um, the notion of Eucharistic coherence came up early in this year from that working group, um, Archbishop Gomez said, well, we should move this over to the Doctrine Committee because they've been having sort of these conversations about this document. And those two things were kind of merged together. So it is not the case that the notion of a document on Eucharistic coherence was in the strategic plan. But as Bishop Rhodes tells it, the Doctrine Committee of the USCCB was sort of already talking about some kind of catechetical document on the Eucharist as a possibility. So that happened. The bishops began working on it. The New York Times said that it was going to be, you know, a banned Biden document. A lot of news said there was going to be a, a banned Biden document. The whole the bishops began to publish things in magazines and newspapers with their position on whether or not pro-abortion politicians should be prohibited from Holy Communion. The Holy See weighed in and said, hey, if you guys are going to publish a document, make sure you're all on the same page and consult with other Episcopal conferences and make sure that you've really considered this serenely, they said, and that you have some unanimity. After that, a group of bishops asked Archbishop Gomez not to put the document on the meeting agenda for June, the June sort of online meeting agenda of the USCCB, because they said, we don't have anything like that unanimity. Um, it turns out that some of the bishops who were said to have asked for that um, actually didn't. Their names were listed on a letter without their consent. Um, Archbishop Gomez put the document on the agenda instead. Uh, you know, anyway, the bishops debated it for three hours at the June meeting. It was very intense. If you listen to the show, you know all this, but I'm just giving a recap. It was very, very intense. By the end of the June meeting, it was like, wow, there, there was a lot of division here. The bishops laid bare at that June meeting a lot of fundamental disagreement about a lot of theological and pastoral principles. So you'd think, boy, this is going to be a tough road to hoe until they get to the document. What happened at the meeting this week, in, that con in, in light of all of that to do that has happened over the past year, was quite shocking because it, it came up at, on the bishop's agenda during their meeting the bishop who was presenting it asked if there were any questions. People asked like two questions. They submitted a couple of amendments. Mostly people, you know, didn't really uh, have disagreement about the possibility of those amendments. And then they voted and uh, they had almost unanimity on the document. Only eight bishops voted against it and a couple of bishops abstained. And so the real question that you're probably wondering is what happened? How did the church go from real division among the bishops, real manifested obvious division among the bishops in June to agreement effectively uh, now? It's a very good question, and we don't know. Well, I don't know if I can say that we don't know. Well, no, we don't really know. I mean, we've heard... we we. Uh, okay, so what happened was the bishops, instead of, you know, in June, they had this via Zoom, um, rather rather undignified. Very public disagreement, unlike most of the disagreements among the bishops about anything. Right. Very well, so public it was, disagreement. It, it was a number of things. It was very public. Um, it was very heated at occasions. It was very sharp on occasions. It was also somewhat undignified because the fact that they dragged out, a, you know, the simple motion to approve the agenda for the meeting <laughs> by an hour was, you know, it, it made them look, it made the ones opposing it look petty and, you know, like they were out to just sort of sabotage the entire premise of the meeting. So it was, it was a very unedifying spectacle in addition to showing all of the important things that you noted about um, divisions in the bishops on uh, basic theological concepts like sin, 
communion, state of grace, state of grace, you know, the nature of the sacraments, you know, what all of that sort of stuff was on display. And it was it was very illuminating, but it was also not terribly edifying. Right. Um, So this time around, they started the conference sessions with a with an afternoon of executive session closed door, which they have not traditionally done normally have one day of executive session at the end of the conference this time it started executive with session means the bishops meet with no cameras no journalists no staff i mean it's just basically the bishops it's I just mean, basically the bishops so they mm-hmm. started with that this time and i mean there was you know we know some of the schedule of what went on from talking to people that there was you know a eucharistic adoration there was reflection they started the it with a holy hour and then they yeah. started and a preached homily and confessions were heard and all these things yeah, yeah. and and that's very good Very good. Um, Then on Tuesday, they had another unscheduled executive session at the end of the day where they talked more just among themselves. Um, And we've talked to a a fair number of bishops bishops about what went on and how it was. And the the responses have been broadly consistent. I think the people said, no, it was really good. It was a very positive experience. You know, there was fraternity. There was a sense of collegiality. Someone even dropped the S word on you at one point. Synodality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Actually, two, two, two people dropped the S word on me. Right. So so we we do know that and there's still though um but there's still a lot we don't know and that even if everything we do know is true and perfect and accurate well, what it, happened th- even before the meeting? Well, what happened even before the meeting was they had all of these regional meetings which they'd promised to have and um this was something that was floated in June and uh, I remember um when we were uh doing the press conference for the June meeting uh in fact, I think I asked uh, Bishop Rhodes, you know, is this is this because people had been proposing, well, we should be meeting synodally, if you like, as as sort of in regions, you know, amongst the basically UCC bishops talk. said we should have between yeah. now and when we publish the document, we should have small meetings to talk about the document. Right. And we right. asked, you know, we asked Bishop Rhodes, you know, is this something you could do and accommodate the timeline before the meeting in November? And he said, yeah, we can and we're going to do it. And, and they seem to have done it. Um, so there's been a lot of talking among the bishops, mm-hmm. a lot of talking uh, privately among the bishops. Which is, which is fine. Parenthetically, because there's a lot to unpack about what we still don't know and framing what we do know a little bit. But before we do that, I just would like to say, I blame you. For what? I hold you personally responsible, and I'm a little bit annoyed about it. Because you have been saying on this show and others for years, gosh, wouldn't it be great if the bishops just turned the cameras off and kicked us out of the room for all the interesting debate? I do so think that that is good. I do think that is good. Well, you got your wish, buddy, and we were in the room for wish, any of the interesting which stuff. Which is fine, because we got the we, we, people told us about it anyway. And I never actually, I said, I wish they would turn the TV cameras off. I never actually said, and they should take the print reporters out. In my mind, they would let the print reporters stay in, but everything would be on background or something like that. No, that was my which suggestion. Is, I was trying to meet oh, you halfway yeah, and said we should only do parlamentary sketch writing, where you can't attribute anything to anyone, right. and you have to write sort of, you know, a... Yeah. Well, so anyway, so the bishops had been meeting since the June meeting. They've been having these regional meetings where they were talking about the document and sending a lot of feedback to the USCCB. And Bishop Rhodes tells me they had an outline. They were working from an outline in those meetings. But basically what they told him, you know, what they told his committee became what the document was. So instead of staff, the the process was very different this time. Instead of staff drafting a document, the document getting sent out for a few comments, which bishops can make in amendments. Basically, the process in this document was very, very different because bishops weighed in on what it should say and then staff really just took what they said and wrote it down okay but that's very different it is very different but what we we still have this thing of we've moved from a situation where 55 bishops were voting against the idea of drafting such a document in the first place in june and before that we don't know how many dozens because some of the signatures were apparently 
I don't want to say fake, but um, well, some incorrectly give consent to be on yeah, the letter. Some of the signatures on the letter saying that this shouldn't be discussed at the previous USCME were were included uh, without proper authorization. We can say right anyway. Um, how did we get from a situation where we had dozens of bishops writing to Archbishop Gomez saying we shouldn't talk about this to a floor fight over we shouldn't have this on the agenda to a vote in which 55 bishops said we shouldn't draft this document to 222 to 8 being the vote to adopt the document. Right. Now, what you say is true, that we've had all of these um, regional meetings for the bishops, that the document has been drafted in a completely different way, that it's you know been a very organic and I'm happy to unironically say synodal process. In creating this document, Bishop Rhodes said that they received something like 100 pages worth of feedback Come. from the bishops. And lots and of bishops who are cynical have said to me, the Holy Spirit showed up. And these are bishops who, um, who, who, who would say that only if they really had that experience and really had that belief. And lots of bishops said, yeah, we thought this was going to be a cluster. And really, it turned out to be something that worked. And, and so is there more to the story? Perhaps. But I don't think that we're being sort of uh, bamboozled on, on the fact that this very different process for creating a document had some seems to have had some positive effect. I don't think we're being bamboozled. What I'm saying is that, okay, so the thing about USCCB documents is um, they matter a lot more in the creation than they do in the publication. Uh, uh, say more. Okay. You get way more attention to these documents in the process of them being drafted in their, sure. in their genesis and creation. That's when everyone's covering it. That's when everyone's talking about it. Now that the document has been adopted, it's going to sink like a stone. I'm sorry, it is. You're not going to see the New York Times writing about it anymore. They, they sure. don't care anymore. You're not going to see most of the Catholic press paying much attention to it anymore and how it's you know brought to bear in the Paris stuff. And honestly, I think the way this tends to play out, particularly when it gets contentious, um, is that far more Catholics in the pews, uh, what they know about a given USCCB document relates to what was going on while it was being drafted than what it actually says when it was finished and adopted. And I mean, I brought this up in uh, the newsletter I sent out this morning. You know, I remember in 2019 when mm -hmm. the bishops were debating a new cover letter for forming consciences for faithful citizenship, which is the U.S. bishops, you know, how to vote guide, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many people read the eventual new cover letter. I, I maybe right. lots, maybe some, but right. I would be willing to bet not nearly as many read the updated cover letter that they adopted after that meeting as have watched YouTube clips of an exchange between Bishop Robert McElroy of San Diego and Archbishop Chaput, then of Philadelphia. That, right. That's where the attention gets grabbed. And the reason for that is simple. It's not just that people like clicks and fights and all that sort of stuff, although it's probably part of it, but it's that the, the authority of bishops, the prophetic witness of bishops comes with their individual voice attached to their name, a document with a lot. And this is what we have in this case, a document, which is itself great. Don't get me wrong. I, I read it. I thought it was fluent. I thought it was very accessible. I thought it was a great um, synthesis of the church's teaching on the Eucharist as a catechetical, catechetical tool. I think it's actually very good. I think it's very useful, but I'm afraid delivering it after months of these meetings and then executive sessions in Baltimore this week with a near unanimous vote is kind of unsatisfactory from the point of view of addressing what has come before, what came before in June, what came before in the months um, after basically inauguration day uh, through to the June meeting, that all that stuff was not just media ephemera. 
that that was bishops were talking to each other in a particular way. They were trading articles, they were trading letters, they were trading comments during debates. That you know mm-hmm. that stuff did, what didn't just you know that wasn't a sort of media confection. That all really happened, and that hasn't been addressed by this. And we have a principle in our. Oh, go ahead, sir. Well, and the other thing that. I, I just find an incongruity that hasn't happened. And again, I'm not saying that the bishops shouldn't have met privately. I'm not saying that they didn't have a sincerely excellent experience of fraternity and the drafting of the document in this way wasn't a very positive experience. By all accounts, it was. And I think that's great. And I'm glad and I hope that they will repeat that as a methodology in future. And, you know, if, if the Holy Spirit showed up, that's beautiful. And, you know, if this is a new way of doing things that's going to work better in the future, that's also great. But there is this disconnect between what has been said in public about the creation of this document and the finished text of the document. And so, for example, you have within the text of the document a reiteration of the church's theological and canonical teaching and discipline that if you are in a state of manifest grave sin, you should be denied communion. It says it very directly, that the church has to discern whether a person should um, be admitted to Holy Communion, and not just because of their subjective state of sin, but because if they're in a, you know, their conscience and these things, but if they're in an objective reality of sin, which is public and scandalous, then the church has an obligation to prohibit them from Holy Communion. Right. And it's, it also it says, says that, that someone, for for an individual Catholic to receive communion in a state of grace, then they're committing an act of sacrilege. Is, right, which is quite, yeah, which is that quite is clear. A, mm-hmm. That is a big boy word. Right. Okay. But we also have had, over the last... 11 months, a lot of bishops, not a majority of the bishops by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot of bishops have said, more or less in terms in public, no, no one should be denied communion because of a state of sin. And what is this idea of grave sin, quote unquote, you know, we're all sinners. And that's, that's not what's in the document. Now, what we don't know, and I'm not saying we don't know there's a plot, I'm saying but the drawback of producing the final document in this very nice, quiet, private, collegial way is we have seen we have seen no uh, we've had no way of tracking the distance traveled by those bishops from what we had in June to the vote we got this week. We don't know if, you know we don't know if people sort of talked and talked and said well agree to disagree but you heard us out so we're going to vote for it anyway even though we don't like it we don't know if over the course of these days people changed their minds. I I'd, I'd love to think they did. Right. We we don't have an answer to that. And so it leaves a lingering doubt of, you know, yeah, pretty much everybody voted for it. But how many of them believe in what it, in everything in this document? And that's that is a it's a it's a real, in my opinion, it's a niggling question that hampers the document's effectiveness is it's one thing to produce a document that is, again, on its own terms as a document brilliant. Yeah. But if attached to that is a sort of lingering question of, you know, well, all the bishops approve the publication of this document. How many of them? Why, right? So a lot of them yeah. are saying why because we got it to, we we got our say and we feel like we were heard and the things that were important in there. But some things that people really did oppose in June are in there and they still seem to have voted for it. So that does raise a question. In our marriage, we sort of have a principle, and as your daughter gets older, you'll probably have this too. That um, if we argue in front of the kids, we should make up in front of the kids, right? So that they, you know, that it's not only rupture but reconciliation that they experience and and it's probably psychologically healthy for them it would probably be psychologically healthy for them if healthier for them if we didn't argue in front of them but whatever um you know that they can that they have the experience of both if they have the experience of rupture then they they have a need for the experience of reconciliation um in this case now we, we are not the kids and the bishops are not the moms and dads um but in this case the church did watch her, their shepherds um be very divided 
and then seemed to have unity, we didn't watch the middle. It is absolutely true. And so there are, it's a legitimate question. How sincere is the unity? How much do the bishops mean these things? Did they just run out of steam? <laughs> did everybody just give up? You know, one yeah. question I think it is an interesting question is, did a lot of people just give up, right? I mean, then figure... Well, there were bishops who didn't the even stay for the vote. Important. Yeah, there were bishops who didn't stay that for the vote, and, and were there... And even bishops who were prominent, you know, Cardinal Supic didn't stay for the vote. He, he apparently went to Rome, and he had been one of the, the ones who was most outspoken, you know, both in the June meeting and before the June meeting about not doing this document. You know, so um, so is there a cadre of bishops who just said, well, forget it, it's going to happen, and let's just not. And, you know, it would be, I think, nice and helpful to kind of know and better understand that because we we did watch um, the argument, and because I think it helps us to understand how it resolved and what it means and and these kinds of things. Um, and so there's a, there's a degree of unsatisfactoriness there. And there's a degree in which uh, the conversation that I had with Bishop Rhodes yesterday was very forthcoming, you know, and he was, he was very straightforward about lessons learned and his frustration about the division and the process at the beginning. But there's also a sense, I think, at least for us, and, and I know other journalists, that like there was not always <laughs> – that the bishops were not always forthcoming about the process. You know, this notion – oft repeated, it was always in the strategic plan to do this. Well, it was always in the strategic plan that there should be catechetical resources related to the Eucharist. But what we didn't have over the past year was a gigantic argument about lifting three paragraphs from Ecclesia de Eucharista and putting them on a on a pamphlet or, or a holy card or something like that, right? I mean, so clearly this was not, was not foreseen. And, um, and, and Bishop Rhodes said, yeah, this wasn't foreseen, but it emerged from this working group that there should be a thing about Eucharistic coherence. And that turned into all of this. And he said at a certain point, I think we lost the narrative. And then we had to get the narrative back and make the document that we made. Um, and, you know, because there wasn't resolution to a, a situation which in which the church, those who watch these kind of things, at least watch the first sort of two acts, as it were. Um, and then the third act was with the curtain closed. Um, because of that, there are now a lot of competing narratives about what happened and sort of a lot of people who are framing it into kind of who won and who lost. And so you'll see... This is the know, problem. Yeah, I, right, I've exactly. read both sides. I've read, you know, oh, this is, you know, th this group of bishops got their, you know, their noses rubbed in it and they had to capitulate. The and conservatives other words, had to capitulate or yeah. the, the liberals got... Owned. And, you owned know. and, yeah, these kinds of things, right? And that's bad. It is bad, especially if it's not true. Um, especially well, it's worse if it's, if not, it's true. not true. But Yeah, right? A lot of bishops have said to me, look, it was a game changer that we started with adoration and confessions and preached homilies. I'm a person of faith. I mean, I believe that that can be the case, that starting a thing with prayer changes things. Um, but I believe you can also start a meeting with adoration and prayer and confessions and unity and then fundamentally disagree about what to do next, pace every ecumenical council, right? Mm -hmm. Um so uh, so that doesn't totally explain it. It seems more plausible to me that the regional meetings helped everybody to feel like they got to have their say. And then a lot of people probably on both sides at a certain point thought, we are still fighting about this document. We just have to move on from this document. Um, there's a lot of – there is among a lot of bishops at least a lot of enthusiasm about this sort of three-year process that the bishops are talking about, about this Eucharistic revival process, which will include – um, urging to to have a real Eucharistic formation at the diocesan level and the parish level, and then this big Eucharistic Congress. There's, I think, among a lot of bishops, enthusiasm about that, and some bishops are seem less enthusiastic about it. But, but the point is, I think for a lot of guys, it was just like I, I do suspect that for a lot of guys, there was a sense, let's just get this done now. Yeah, you know? yeah. Especially because you know the big fight in June um, ended w with a very clear showing that the document was going to pass. Right, so. You had enough votes at the June meeting to draft the document to to pass the document, um, 
which you needed sixty six percent. You needed two thirds. They got seventy five. Right, got seventy five percent. So, so even those who were really vocally opposing it, it's, it, by that time, there may well have been a sense, and this is speculation, but there may well have a sense of okay, well, do, do we keep our powder dry going forward? Because look, there's clear impetus. It seems to do this. I think I, I, I yeah, I, I don't know either. But that's my point: is we don't know. <laughs> We don't know. Yeah, but the text of the document is very. Uh, the text of the document contains a focus on the mass, uh, the centrality of the mass in the in the life of the church. The the, the mass is the source and summit uh, of um, of the Christian life. You know, often we, the we use a phrase in English: the the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, and we tend to um, we tend to talk about the Eucharist as the thing which we receive, and the mass is the place in which it's celebrated. Although Eucharist can mean both, but in its original context, that phrase, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, is talking about the Eucharistic sacrifice, namely the mass. And so the document talks about the mass uh, as the source and summit of the Christian life, and our adoration of the Eucharist, and our devotion to the Eucharist, um, and our veneration of the Eucharist as something which um, is formational for the mass and flows from the mass, and then Christian charity flowing from the from the mass and the Eucharist and um, you know the obligations of the, of a Christian to proclaim the gospel and to animate the temporal order with the spirit of Christ, all flowing from the Eucharist. And uh, and so there, there's there's a there's a motif there that is drawn from um, from the church's tradition. And then there is a section which does focus on you know the document was never going to say Joe Biden can't receive Holy Communion. There was a slim chance that the document might have said um, politicians, figures in public life who advocate for teachings against, the te- you know, for, for policies contrary to the teachings of the church, including abortion, and then it would have given a laundry list of other ones too, probably, um, you know, sh- should not present themselves for Holy Communion and may be prohibited for Holy Communion. There was a slim chance that the document might have said that. But I said back in May that I never, ever thought that was going to happen and, um, you know, that it was going to be relatively that the, that the, while there might be something about the church discerning suitability for the Eucharist, it was not going to be that specific. And indeed, there is something about the church discerning suitability of the Eucharist for the Eucharist. It is not that specific, but it does say that people who are living in, in ways that are contrary to the teachings of the church should not um, approach Holy Communion and may not be admitted to Holy Communion. So it does contain those things, but it's amazing. I think in part maybe because people haven't read the document, even though it's out now, and in part because there was no sort of third act, it's been amazing to hear people say, well, the bishops acted cowardly with regard to Biden because they didn't call Biden out, or the bishops backed down against Biden. Neither of those is an accurate reflection of what the document is, and the document is a pretty good and interesting um, document that is worth uh, worth reading. Yeah, what will well, happen I, to be now? clear, the, the, the bishops backed down over Biden narrative version of events, reaction to all of this. I, I don't put... Um, I don't put any responsibility on the conference for that because they've been completely clear from the beginning. Yeah. No one's talking about naming names or individuals. That's not our deal. Well, institutionally, the conference has been clear on that. There have been bishops in the June debate. There were bishops who were saying we, you know, in the context of should we draft this document, there are bishops who are saying we need this document because it is a sacrilege that Biden receives Holy Communion. And that led to the that led, I think, reasonably people to conclude, oh, this document must be about whether Biden ought to receive Holy Communion, right, because there are bishops I, who are very, very clear about it that. It seems but to me. But the drafters of the conference, the, you know, but, the document, et cetera. But even that, it seems to me clear that if you actually follow who said what, when about this, it's it's obvious that, yes, the genesis of a discussion in a document on quote-unquote Eucharistic coherence, that was at the election well, of, from the Biden working from group. From yeah. the Biden working group. No question about that. But the problem wasn't that Joe Biden is such an egregiously bad Catholic. 
he must be singled out and punished at the national level. It was Joe Biden is an exemplar and an example and a emblematic of a thing that Catholics are doing in this country that is gravely problematic at a theological level. And it's gravely problematic for them that, you know, one of the things that a lot of bishops have talked about in the last couple of months and was talked about a lot um, during the press conferences this week in Baltimore was it's not just about Biden. That the that was the sort of origin of this document, but also um, lots of survey and poll results. There's a Pew study. There was the pillar. What are we calling it? The pillar wrap poll. Uh, you you had a cool name for it. I think it's the wrap poll. Yeah, anyway, religious attitudes and practices. Yeah, that's it. The uh, the pillar poll that we did and published in a, you know for a whole week and what seems like it was a month ago now, but I think it was probably only last week or something like that, um, showing that you know there's a there is a lack of faith or a lack of understanding around key teachings of the church, including around the Eucharist. And so it it seems to me perfectly reasonable to say Biden's modeling a certain kind of Catholicism that needs to be addressed. Now, one of the things that I I would have liked to have seen perhaps the bishops unpack a bit more at the conference, and maybe they will uh, in subsequent meetings, is yeah, we've had the issue of, you know, the, the sort of modeling of the particular issue of Biden and abortion and communion and all that. And yes, we've had a lot of discussion about belief in the true presence and Catholic belief or lack of belief in various central Eucharistic uh, doctrines, which has contributed in large part to the production of this document that the USCCB adopted. But the same poll results, the same survey results, um, hold equally true for other rather crucial central Catholic teachings and doctrines. Mm -hmm. So like I dig it that the the Eucharistic document, catechetical document, is a good sidecar to the Eucharistic revival that's going on, which sounds really great. And the program, I think, looks really cool. And I'm excited about that. And I know it's um, Bishop Cousins who's quarterbacking it. And I, it, I have every faith that Bishop Cousins is seriously alive with enthusiasm for the Eucharist and the project. Yeah. So I think that's going to do well. And I get like the... The reason why those two go together, the Eucharistic revival and the Eucharistic catechetical document. Like, I, I dig that there's that sidecar, but it seems to me that it's like, well, we've picked an issue here. The bishops have picked an issue here, and it's an important issue. It is, if you like, the central sacramental issue. It's the source and summit of Christian life, all that. But there's a there's a way bigger problem. You know, it would seem to me that, you know, if— uh, that, Equally high percentages of Catholics don't believe in, say, heaven or hell, or, right, or don't right, believe or, they will yeah. be judged, or things like that. Or like, don't believe that God loves them. Or don't believe that or God is like the that worst God loves thing. Them. Right. Right. Like, that's exactly. like if there is one, like the first thing out of the gate, Catholicism 101, God loves you. God yeah. is love. You know, like, like there seems to me to be. And God created you in his image, and, you know, Christ calls you into the. into to share in the inner life of the Trinity forever. I mean, the it is good to have catechesis about the Eucharist. What we learned in the rap poll is that many, many Catholics don't know, seem not to know that God loves them or seem not to know that the church offers them transformation and renewal and healing and freedom in this life and the next, which is a much bigger thing than catechesis about the Eucharist. A much bigger thing. And no, we no, are, not, by the way, we are, I have heard much, from a, I heard from a, a much lot. more comprehensive problem than people who practice than people who practice the faith and don't have have the right doctrinal understanding of the Eucharist. Exactly, right. and mm-hmm. we, it seems to me that what we have is a catechetical crisis. 
in the church in the United States, of which the Eucharistic part is merely a very important, but one issue of, or one part of that, one symptom of that. One I'm not even I, sure I'm ready to say that we have a catechetical crisis a as crisis the primary thing. A deep crisis of faith, of, of, a, of a basic Christian, of the seed of the gospel having taken, seemed to have taken root and bear fruit. Yes. It's more than just catechesis. It's a deeper Christian identity and, and, um, and, 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 and that, that, that the Christian life, the Christian life would animate um, the meaning of life, right? I mean, right. Uh, uh, yeah. So, and, and by the way, having previously making a document about the Eucharist is a is an easier project than that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, well, now it, the Eucharistic revival is project. aimed. I, it seems to me that this Eucharistic revival project is aimed at an invitation both to practicing Catholics and people who don't practice the faith to ex- come and experience, um, co- to come and experience the incarnation as an event. Um, an actual honest to God event even, but to come and experience the proclamation of the gospel as an event. And that seems to me to be more primary, a sort of more primary thing. Well, this, was, says, this is an interesting, I don't know if you noticed this, but one of the few interventions um, that they had during the sort of, there was only a half hour. Just, mm-hmm. there were, well, so the, the Eucharistic document came out for discussion twice. One was on Tuesday afternoon when it was sort of formally laid before the bishops and, you know, sort of, we are opening this for amendments, quote unquote, even though, as yeah. you said, they've been amending this right the way along the way. This is a bishop generated document. Um, and the idea was that no one was really going to talk about it because the amendments have all been done. Everyone is, you know, they, they agreed essentially to, this is what the document is that we have written beforehand. So they weren't expecting a lot of interventions there and they didn't get any, well, they got one or two. And one of the ones that they got was, um, a bishop from New Mexico, Peter Baldacchino got up and said, I really like this document. It's great. Whatever. He said, what I what I want to make sure we do as bishops when it's sort of brought out and rolled out is exactly this, is to make sure people understand that what the church means by the Eucharist, because we keep talking about the Paschal sacrifice in this document, said what I want people to understand, what we as bishops need to make sure people understand is that this is an effective reality for each of us every time. And he talked particularly about the idea of you know the Paschal mystery, and it is a is a physical and spiritual passage from death to life. That is an mm-hmm. experience right. of the resurrection. Right. That that is what the Eucharist is. And I thought, okay, th- this this is this is good stuff. This you know yeah. if this is mm-hmm. how the bishops are going to bring this document to their diocese, is to say not all right. You've all, you've all, seems like most of you have been failing penny catechism. So we're going to, you know, sit down. We're going to go over the points again. But if there is an, if, if there is a real effort to transmit, um, again, to the faithful in this country, an experience of the Eucharist as fundamentally an experience of the resurrection, an experience of the saving power of Christ, then, then I can see a lot of good coming from it. And I, and I hope well, this we do. And and that means not that what what I think is interesting about the the juxtaposition of the document and the Eucharistic revival is, um, it seems like the Eucharistic revival project is the bigger project, and this is effectively a sort of a, a sort of a theological framework and for from which it can operate, and in a certain way theological guardrails to make sure that it doesn't go. But but the, but it, but you know as Rhodes talked about it yesterday, he really sees it because for him, it started with we should do something to support the Eucharistic revival thing, which is in the strategic, a Eucharistic Congress, which is in the strategic plan. And then Eucharistic coherence, he said, was put in. He said, when they asked us to put that in, we thought, okay, we'll put it into what we've been talking about, but within this larger framework. So he really saw it as a part of a bigger thing. And and he said, look, if if this was, 
if we if this wasn't connected to the Eucharistic revival, I would think, what did we just do all that for? Um, he said, but from my point of view, if it serves the Eucharistic revival, I think that project is really, really important. And 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 he, he th- that's a different thing even then. A lot of times when a church document comes out, an encyclical comes out, or a, di- a USCCB thing comes out, everybody starts talking about, okay, we need an implementation plan for this document. And I... That exasperates me. It drives me nuts. Okay, we have a new document. Now we need to have a committee in the chancery, and the chancery needs to think of four events that we're going to have to implement this thing, and we're going to distribute a memo with the various buzzwords that are now the words that we use to talk about the faith so that we everybody knows that it's time for us to shift from those buzzwords to these buzzwords. I and hate. don't forget your yardsticks, J.D. You have to have yardsticks right, to measure to the implementation. measurables to make sure that we – I hate when a document comes out and then there's this programmatic freaking implementation thing. I do not like it. This is strikes me. I I don't mean to be optimistic here, but this strikes me as a different thing <laughs> because they're saying anyone right, suggests. Because exactly. rather than saying okay, we're going to ask dioceses to have an implementation plan of this document, which would be like okay, I guess we got to have some, I don't know, somebody to come and give a lecture Someone about the document. Down a slide deck, right. Yeah, exactly right. It's like we're going to have this big thing that we think that if our plan works and it's an ambitious plan, that if our plan works, it's going to be everything from. A, a bunch of uh, a bunch of preached holy hours in the parish with confessions to um, a gathering for a hundred thousand people for mass in Indiana and everything in between with a lot of different kinds of formation and things and da da da. That's a hugely sort of ambitious plan. That is not an implementation plan of the document, but we're doing a pastoral action. Uh, we're we're kind of trying to coordinate actually a score of pastoral actions and uh, and centralize them around the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And this document is effectively a theological. A bit of a theological framework for our pastoral action. That seems this is this is paradigmatically different. This framework that's happening right now is paradigmatically different from the ordinary way that it seems to me that think, things have been coordinated at the USCCB in recent memory in the church. Now, does that mean it'll definitively work, or that there aren't people who are raising criticism? No, but I think stepping back, there's been so much talk about the document, 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 and it's because of the the way it rolled out. That the Eucharistic coherence thing, you know, as, as Rhodes said, he felt like we lost the narrative because the Eucharistic coherence thing became this mega thing. And um, and I think there will probably be a temptation for people to say, oh, actually, that's a that's a rewriting of history. They're, they're trying to cram that into this other thing. But, you know, um, this the, the Eucharistic Congress was approved as a as an aspect of the strategic plan. And I've actually changed my mind on this because at first I was frustrated and feeling like they're just saying strategic plan a lot because they want to – they don't want to say that it started with the Biden committee. And I was feeling frustrated about that. Um, and I do think that there are people who have been – there are bishops even who at press conferences have sort of said strategic plan so much that it it, it feels like a whitewashing of history because um, there is a moment at which the Biden working group says we need to have a document on Eucharistic coherence and we, and – an accurate portrayal of history requires recognizing that that put all of these things that have happened over the last year into into motion. But like from from Rhodes' perspective, as, as he's saying, he's saying like, look, our thought was always we're building a document that's a part of this big sort of pastoral action. And so just stepping away from kind of the document to think about the real thing that's happening right now at the USCCB meeting is, uh, among other things, but the real sort of paradigmatic shift of the thing that had is coming out of that meeting is this big coordinated thing that is intended to be effectively a national coordinated itinerary of evangelization and and an invitation to conversion which is excellent and this is this is what i was saying earlier when i was getting annoyed about we didn't get the third act right but saying but if this is how they're going to do things 
from now on, that's great. Because if we don't have to, you know, we don't need the first through. and second act. I mean, I yeah. think bishops have the right to have conversations that the media is not involved in. I, Absolutely. I, but I I'm saying if that. we if we get spared the first and second act next time, and it's just going to be, no, this is how it's going to be from now on, is the bishops are going to come up with an idea. And they say, this is something we're thinking about. We're going to meet regionally. We're going to have ideas. We're going to send all, you know, from the region. We're send, and then we're going to meet privately. We're going to discuss and we're going to pray. And that, you know, and they're going to have this sort of synodal mentality. I think it's fantastic. And I tell you another thing. Um, one of the... I mean, obviously, the two big sort of individual speeches that kick off the public sessions that everyone watches um, are always the conference president and the nuncio. And Archbishop Pierre's address this year was basically him defining synodality. And I thought he did a great job. I thought he, he it was the first time I've heard a talk on the the nature and methodology of synodality that didn't make me want to slam my hand in a drawer. Um it was concrete. It wasn't self-referential, and it was absolutely oriented to mission and evangelization. And I thought, I, I, I thought, I realize this is an opinion that's probably not shared amongst other media outlets, which is fine. That's why we're right and they're wrong. Um, that it dovetails extremely nicely with the vision articulated by Archbishop Gomez in his speech. Um, but we won't go into that. But to say that you know, Archbishop here is talking about synodality as a as a real methodology, not as sort of a conversation of conversations or a meeting about meetings or anything like that. And it wasn't programmatic in that way. It was, it was, it's a mentality that you come to the table with. Are you- <laughs> Ed, in which Ed has become optimistic about the synod on synodality. No, I have not become optimistic about the synod on synodality. That is still going to be a dumpster fire. And that is going to be a meeting about and, meetings. And, 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 and I don't want to get too far into the like, boy, what the bishops did is so great. And anytime they have closed door conversation, we're still going to be kind of busting our asses to find out the political machinations behind all that. And I think there are political machinations involved in this. And part of what happened here is I think some of the guys who were opposing the document said, we're going to live to die another day and let's just, you know, put our hands up so that we can fight another fight. Oh, um, I mean, in know. that sense, they did us a favor because they all they did was lock everyone else out of the room. And I think there's a, right, exactly. And I think there's a very good question to ask about whether this year's fight, whether all of the hullabaloo about this document you know, this sort of will be kind of the legacy of the Archbishop Gomez presidency of the USCCB was there was this gigantic thing. Now, if what comes out of that is a new way of doing things, that might be better. Great. But it was a lot of really difficult stuff and a lot of hard stuff for the church to get there. Right. But, yeah. but I mean, again, if what we're coming up with is a sort of new way in which the conference is going to come up with these documents and have these discussions, I think they can be really cool. Hagan Leo. Yeah. Um, yes, I do, too. Yeah, I do too. I, I want to talk about one other thing because I think – I don't know how much time we have, but I, I want to talk about one other thing. Yeah, I think, it, I think that's really If people are listening cool. to us talk about the USCCB meeting in Baltimore at all, I, I, know, but I, I have, think they're I, here for the ride. I got a deadline. I got a deadline, man. <sighs> okay, um, but we're not going to not talk about the thing I want to talk about. Okay. I, I was surprised. So the Eucharistic coherence document passed and then there was um, – and then there was a uh, um, a presentation from Bishop Cousins about the um, the Eucharistic revival ending in this culminating in this Eucharistic Congress and and Cousins threw out a number and I can't remember if this was the number for the Eucharistic Congress or a broader thing than that but Cousins threw out a number of uh, how much they thought this project which I suppose was really the Eucharistic Congress in 2024 of 28 million bucks and he said 28 million bucks is how much we think this is going to cost and 
you know, now before you guys, um, you know, have a stroke about 28 million bucks, th- another way to think about it is $300 a person and is $300 a person kind of worth this. And what he was describing is an event that sa- that he was describing it a lot in a way that sounded like effectively we're throwing, I've never been to a Eucharistic Congress, I don't exactly know, but it sounds to me like he was effectively saying we're throwing a World Youth Day. Yeah, that's what it sounds uh, like to me. Several days of gatherings where we expect, you know, that parishes will drive in and we'll have housing at parishes and universities and, mm-hmm. you know, people will be there and lots of speakers and stuff. So we're throwing a World Youth Day. And he said, you know, think about that $28 million is effectively $300 a person. And there was, a, there was a, a little bit of pushback. People saying, is that worth spending the money? And, you know, one, one bishop said, $28 million is four times my diocesan budget. And so it sounds like a lot of money, um, you know, which is, which is a fair pushback. But... I, for myself at least, I was surprised by that because I hear uh, so many priests of a certain age, of a certain generation say, I discovered my priestly vocation at World Youth Day. Mm-hmm. And so many Catholic apostolates in the United States, um, you know, at World Youth Day, Youth Day in Denver in 1993, which was this big moment in the church's history in the United States, and so many Catholic apostolates in the United States, Catholics who are doing the thing, say, we got the vision for this. It became clear to us that we needed to do this. This became a thing at World Youth Day in Denver in 1993. Um, I don't think I appreciated, but it was probably the case for World Youth Day in Denver in 1993, that there were a lot of Catholics who were um, cynical about it or saying, hey, this is a huge expenditure of money, time, and resources. Is it worth it? And I would look back on the last however many decades that is since, you know, I'd look back on the last 30 years, I guess, more or less since then and say, you can see that a lot. there's a lot of fruit born in the life of the church over the last 30 years from that moment, which was expensive and time-consuming and these kinds of things. And you can see that a lot of people walked away from that different and pursuing a life in the church and a life in Christ in a different way. But that's clearly not universally shared. And so I do think we're going to see over the next couple of years, I, I wonder if we're going to see more pushback on that. There's some theological, you can hear theological pushback, or not pushback, but theological differences in the discussion. And I you know, I think we'll continue to see different theological emphases and these kinds of things. But the money thing is interesting to me because um, I look at World Youth Day in Denver, 1993, which I didn't go to because I was 11 and not really practicing the Catholic faith, but and think, wow, I can just look at the trajectory of a lot of things in the history of the church and see that was a moment. But it seems clear that that is not universally shared, and it'll be interesting to watch that. Yeah. But if this does happen, and it does happen, and they sort of go at it all guns blazing, like, they were suggesting that's the intention of doing. I think it could be that big. I think it could have that kind of lasting. I absolutely agree with you about the impact of World Youth Days and the, what they've had in different parts of the world. I, I'm not as familiar with the history of the church in the United States as you are, especially the contemporary history of the church in the United States as you are. So I've but heard. But you can point, actually, you you do something different. You point to the, um, the visit Benedict, Benedict the Sixteenth visit to the UK, and I've heard lots of Brits yeah. like you, English people, say, "Yeah, that was a big moment of conversion." It was a for huge thing. It was mm-hmm. a huge thing. And yeah, I, I was. And the I, thing I, is, I put down my I put down my wand and I picked up a crucifix, and it was a transformational moment. You're an odd person. <laughs> um, but these, I mean the. This sort of stuff matters. It's not just because a lot of times I get the sense of people are like, oh, well, we're just putting on a show. It's like, no, it, the, or this is a big cheerleading rally. You know, yeah, this it's, is a big, it's not a pep rally. It's not a million show. dollars for a pep rally. You know, these kinds of things. Right. But the thing to understand about events like World Youth Day and things like this is it's sincerely not supposed to be a public cultural show of force. That's not the idea is to say, look, we can get all these people in one place. Aren't we doing well? That it's yeah. actually about the participation. It's about the people doing it because there is something. And I'm sorry, it, it's you, you read this in the lives of the saints. You, le- you read this in the history of the church. You read this in the Bible, that there is something about 
getting up and moving, getting mm-hmm. up and moving with an intention Overmage, of going to yeah. meet God mm-hmm. somewhere. Right, yeah. That, you know, I, it, uh, it is a pilgrimage mentality, and that yields incredible fruit. And I think there's also something to um, the sense. This is what I've always thought is the main fruit of uh, uh, the main sort of fruit of the March for Life. If there's a fruit of the March for Life, I've always said the main fruit of the March for Life is that um, a kid who is uh, who who is uh, pro life um, goes to a place where they see a lot that they're not the only person who is pro life. Now, I think the March for Life has been in lots of ways politicized, and we've talked about that in January. We'll probably talk about it in January again. So, it's not a commercial for the March for Life, but I've always thought, well, the thing that probably that bears fruit is that. People who think that they're kind of alone in a point of view discover that they're not. And in something like this, people who think that the church is their parish, you know, or or p- people who have a, narrow, a, a relatively narrow scope of experience with the life of the church suddenly see a broad, enthusiastic, vibrant community of believers. And that can be transformational in itself. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. I think it, yeah. I think it can. And I think it will be. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, you know, it has to work obviously, but it'll be interesting to follow the, 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 you know, the, the concern, the concerns raised about money. It'll be interesting to follow the, you know. <laughs> Watched and, you very carefully back away from saying it'll be very interesting, be interesting to follow interesting the to follow. money. It will be interesting to follow the money in that it'll be interesting to follow the concerns about money and the way that plays into things and the way in which different dioceses do or don't participate, what that might mean. It'll also be interesting to follow the money. And Ed, don't get me wrong. I'm saying I think this could be good for the church and all this, but you know, if I, if money's, if, if I oh, find out that follow I'm, the money. <laughs> Dollars being misappropriated. If you think they're going to the spend, the pillar will be there. <laughs> if you think they're going to spend that many millions of dollars on something, and I'm not going to be running through it with a fine tooth, and comb. it's very much worth paying attention because these kinds of things do can crop up. You know, sort of consultants and these. There are ways. In, there are ways in which people hear that and think, oh, how am I going to make some some coins off of it? Mm-hmm. And uh, and if that is the case, you had better believe that the pillar will be paying attention to it. And it's much easier than doing Vatican Finance because they're going to form a 501c3, which is going to have to file tax filings, and they're going to have to have a, you know have all it's this all accessible in donor English. information. It's going to be in English, for heaven's sake, and easy to access. So um, in a certain way, yeah, you better believe we'll be paying attention to the money. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the notion, and, and, and for me, the most interesting part is two paradigmatic shifts coming out of this meeting. And I, I haven't said this before this show because I'm still thinking about it. But one, this Eucharistic document was at the end of the day produced in a very different way than other documents. First, you had the big fight, 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 fight. But then after that, you, you know, coming out of the fight was somebody saying, can we talk about this in regional meetings? And then you had the regional meetings, small groups of bishops sent an outline, talking through that outline, sending lots and lots of stuff, and that being the the stuff that made the document. That's a different thing. It's a paradigmatic shift. And then I guess three paradigmatic shifts because the conference starting with adoration and confessions and, 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 and sermons and these things, this is a big shift too. And, and, and I think an important one. And um, even the sort of executive sessions, if the bishops are moving more towards executive sessions, I think media is going to have to get used to that. And the bishops are going to have to give us a clearer understanding of when and why and these kinds of things. And it would be more helpful if we felt like bishops were telling the truth when they did talk. And so thinking carefully, are we hyperbolizing, you know, are we hyperbolizing the way we're talking about the strategic plan here in a way that makes it sound like we're whitewashing history? If it, The more that bishops, that it feels like bishops are being transparent when they have the doors closed, I think the easier it'll be for Catholics to accept that and Catholic media to accept that. But two paradigmatic shifts. One, all of that, which is like five. And then two, this pastoral action that the USCCB seems to be taking on that is different from the kind of thing that they usually do. And that may well bear a fruit. I hope it does. Okay. Uh, there were some other things that happened at the meeting. 
Is that what you want to talk about? Or you want to talk about there, Rome? There are other, no, we don't need to talk about Rome. I, I, there are two things else that happened at the meeting. One that you want to talk about and one that I want to talk about. And I would like to give you the choice. Would you like to, uh, would you like the ball first or would you like to decide which field of play is yours? Kicking or sticking? Uh, Kicking or sticking. American children, when they play football on the playground, um, flip the coin and then say, kicking or sticking. In other words, do you want to choose the side that you want or do you want to do the kickoff? I see. Um, I'm not sure which would be which in this particular scenario. You want the ball first. Okay, yeah. We'll talk about the thing I'm going to talk about first because we're not going to talk about it for very long. But I'm just going to consider this a public service announcement. (laughs) All right? That's what I, I that, that that's this is this is a public service announcement, which I'm going to challenge a little bit after you make it. Good luck. Um, no, one of the things that was happening during the conference was there was supposed to be an in-person presentation by Archbishop Shakluna, who's the Archbishop of Malta, but also the Adjunct Secretary of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, in which he would walk the bishops through the new Book Six of the Code of Canon Law, which comes into force next month. COVID, etc. It ended up being a video presentation. Um, I think it would be fair to say that I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't know that everyone else did the reception in the press room. It was very warm in there. Um, the reception in the press room yeah. was hostile on occasion. I'm a Shakluna fan, but that was, in my mind, not an especially good In the actual hall with the bishops, I think it would be fair to say that uh, it didn't command the full and undivided of all of the people in the room. That but- is probably the case. Yes, indeed. So much so that they decided to break it up and show it in two parts as opposed to viewing as a whole. Anyway, a lot of interesting stuff was said in there. A lot of interesting stuff that had to do with things that the bishops themselves wanted to talk about but didn't get around to. Um, One of the interventions uh, towards the end of play unrelated to the video was Bishop DiMarzio, who is now not the Bishop of Brooklyn. He's the Apostolic Administrator of Brooklyn. Um, But Bishop DiMarzio got up and said, we need to have an urgent conversation about priests being treated as guilty until proven innocent when accusations are made well made me wonder if he's listened to the show because we've been we've been saying that well exactly and also you know guess what Archbishop Shaklin was talking about and guess what is in the new book six of the code of canon law it's all in there the stuff that they want to talk about it's in there but one of the things that was really interesting was there has been a lingering canonical debate amongst canonists and it's actually been a bit of a fight behind closed doors between two a canonical fight a canonical fight between two closed between closed doors between two Vatican congregations over exactly this, and it's all about Vosestes and the category of quote unquote vulnerable adults, which if you've been following the post McCarrick years, this is the this is the term of art for basically the kind of people that McCarrick targeted who weren't minors, seminarians, people under authority, people that you know are in a quasi spiritual relationship, you know stuff like that. And these, and the question has been, vulnerable adults have to be recognized in law. They need to be granted some kind of protection. We need to take these cases as seriously as we do um, the abuse of minors and, and people like that. And there have been very, very prominent people amongst them um, on regular occasions, including from the floor of the USACB, Cardinal Sean O'Malley has said repeatedly that vulnerable adults should be considered equivalent in law to minors in cases of clerical sexual abuse. And there has been, since Vosestes came out and created this category or adopted this term of vulnerable adults, the question of, and saying they are granted equal protection under law, are are we saying that they are the same in the eyes of the law as minors in these cases, or are we saying they're similar to, and to be, you know, treated as equally grave or whatever, but not 
legally equivalent as, you know, it's the same thing. And the reason this matters, well, there's a couple of reasons why, but particularly the reason this matters is sexual abuse of minors is a reserve delict, which is to say it is a major crime in canon law, which the CDF alone is competent to investigate and try. So it means that if there's an accusation of clerical sexual abuse of a minor in a diocese, the as soon as the bishop hears about it, he's got to write it down and he's got to send it to the CDF in Rome and say, this is the accusation. What should we do? And the CDF mm-hmm. will either do it itself or write back and say, here's what you can do. We give you the authority to do it. Mm-hmm. And so the fight has been, well, what about vulnerable adults? Right. If there's an accusation about the abuse of a quote unquote vulnerable adult, does all that go to the CDF? Is all that for Rome to deal with? Because that could be a lot. Some of the cases that we've been talking about coming out of the Diocese of Cleveland in uh, recent weeks have been what would be considered vulnerable adults, seminarians in relation to a priest, um, things like that. Do all this, does all this go to Rome? Is all of this reserved? And what Shaklunas says is, oh no, 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 no. Vulnerable adults, the abuse of vulnerable adults, is they are all granted equal protection in law to minors, but they are not juridically equivalent. And it is not a reserve delict. And it is for individual diocesan bishops to investigate, to prosecute, and to try in a real canonical process these accusations right. in their diocese. And this right. is a big deal because when you have these situations in most dioceses now, and sadly they do happen, when you have, for example, um, an affair between a pastor and a member of parish staff or someone in his in his pastoral flock within the parish where there's mm-hmm. a, a spiritual relationship. These mm-hmm. are all relationships that be considered with a vulnerable adult. Mm-hmm. And bishops tend to treat this as a moral failure on the part of the priest, a serious moral failure, needing mm-hmm. some kind of correction, some kind of, you know, whatever, but a moral failure, but not a crime. And what Shakluna told the bishops is, that is a crime, and you have to treat it as a crime because Vosestes tells you you have to treat well, it a as a crime. A canonical crime. Yeah, a canonical crime. Mm-hmm. And yeah. here's the stinger. If vulnerable adults, uh, the abuse of vulnerable adults is for the bishops to prosecute and investigate as a canonical crime under the terms of Vosestes, if they don't do it, that is negligence under the terms right. of Vosestes. This is a huge new to-do list for diocesan bishops, and it comes with a very, very real sting in the tail if they don't. And I'm not sure that that got through to the floor. Yeah. Okay. I think that's... End of PSA. I don't think it got through to the floor. I think you are right. I don't think it got through to the floor. Um, It is... For what it's worth, I think... Archbishop Shakluna presented what is Archbishop Shakluna's read of what Vosestes says, mm. and Ar- and Archbishop Shakluna is the you know is the adjutant secretary adjunct secretary of the CDF, um, and therefore a Vatican official and a well regarded canon lawyer in many many ways. He's not he, he does not possess the authority to definitively interpret the law, and so the U.S. bishops were officially given a particular interpretation of the law, and I think. If true, it would require a great deal of shift because I think bishops would indeed have to have many more canonical processes for things which have been treated in the past as moral failures, and the dioceses themselves would have to have those for for um, things which had been not not treated canonically in the past. And, and and I've been talking about graduated penalties for these things, and you have, so this is something that we think is okay to do, um, and that may well have some good benefit for the church. But I think the other side of it is there is not yet clarity about what whether this is precisely what Vosestes means. And we may not find out because Vosestes is running on a time clock. And um, that time clock, Vosestes was promulgated for three years, almost three years ago, um, you know, two and a half years ago. And so 
there, rather than a definitive clarification on this, we may simply see a new version of Vos Estes with some clarification. And I would think, for what it's worth, while I say all that, if they are work, if the Holy See is working right now on a new version of Vos Estes, Archbishop Shaklun is part of the working on it. I mean, I think everyone would think. Right, but to be clear, he wasn't delivering a presentation on Vos Estes. He was delivering a presentation on the new Canon thirteen ninety eight. Right. Which he's saying. Yeah, but he this is what creates things, the obligation but he was on the drawing bishops. Drawing things from from Estes. Merely the, the definition, definition of vulnerable, vulnerable persons. Dark. Right. Exactly. So. But it, one other thing, and you're entirely right. Archbishop Shaklun is not in within his own person. Pontifical Commission for Legislative Texts, which has the competence of the Vatican of issuing authoritative interpretation of law. However, he did say several times in the course of his presentation that basically this isn't my interpretation; this is the Pope's interpretation. Yeah, right, exactly. But he, but only only the PCLT can say this sure. is the Pope's interpretation in a definitive way. Sure. So you're saying thing effectively is, he's the adjunct secretary of the CDF. So if he says we ain't taking these cases, they're yours. That the matters CDF as a practical matter. Agreed. Him. I think that's true as a very. I think that is true as a practical matter. And that may be enough to resolve the tension that I'm stating. I'm just stating right now you're interpre- he's interpreting 13, Canon 1398 in light of Vosestes Lex Mundi. And since Vosestes Lex Mundi is a, is a half year from expiring, yes. we may not find out even if that's the – if his interpretation of this version of Vosestes was right. Because rather than clarify that, they may just spell it out more distinctly in, in the new Vosestes. If they do, I think it is reasonable to conclude that Archbishop Schlin has the mind of the legislator. So this could mean that dioceses – that diocesan bishops have – an obligation to treat as as canonical delicts or potential canonical delicts many things which have to date been treated as moral failures with regard to sexual misconduct. And, and just to put a potentially rosy spin on what is a very serious topic and, you know, a sad one in every instance where this comes into play is maybe we can look forward to a hiring and wages bonanza for canonists in the U.S. <laughs> diocese. I earnestly hope it will, it will be a lot more work for can lawyers. That is for sure. Yep. Yeah. Oh, with that said, um, the other thing that you might read about in the news this week for the church is that in the Vatican finance scandal trial, um, something popped up, which is uh, – Ed's making a face because I want to talk about one other thing, and this was not the thing. But something popped up. Basically, um, you know that at the center of the Vatican finance trial scandal is the question of who approved the London property deal and who signed off on – the way in which the middleman, Gianluigi Torzi, structured the deal, and did he extort the Holy See, or did the Holy See effectively give him permission to structure the deal in a way that allowed him to net far more money than anybody anticipated? I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but it came up this week in a hearing in the trial, a sort of pretrial hearing in the court, that it's possible, at least, that the Pope might have been far more involved in the approval of the Gianluigi Torzi London deal than anybody knew, to the point where it is possible, defense attorneys are alleging, that it is possible that the Pope might have signed off on the deal. It's already emerged in court effectively that it seems like the Secretary of State signed off on what John Luigi Torzi did. So the Vatican says John Luigi Torzi extorted us. He bought this building, he held it in a holding company, and then he told us we needed to pay a lot more money before we could have the building. And John Luigi Torzi said, well, that is what I did, but I didn't extort you because I told you in the contract that's exactly what I was going to do. You should have read the contract. We already know that it seems like the Secretary of State actually signed off on John Luigi Torzi's plan, and he just assumed it was either going to be hidden in the documents, or maybe someone on the inside was on the take and working with him to deceive the secretary. I mean, that's what we don't know. But now it seems like maybe the Pope himself signed off on, in a manner of speaking, this, in this sense. The London 
property deal was getting complex. Gianluigi Torti was shaking them down. And it seems like it's possible the Pope might have said, look, we can fight this guy or we can work with him. We might as well just work with him and get it done. So if it is indeed true that or plausibly true that the Pope was involved in this London financial scandal, then things might get a lot more interesting or magically go away. Yeah. That's the thing. And I mean, this is this has been um, I mean, this has been something that is they it, might resolve it in an executive session of the court. Indeed. Um, and this has been I mean, but this is this, this is not if you like um, new news regarding what the Pope may have known or weighed in on since. I mean, we've been talking about and reporting since 2019, at least that it when all of this was going down, basically when Tortsu was allegedly holding the metaphorical gun to the Holy See's head. Um, and shaking them down for an additional fifteen million, that eventually, sort of the thing, the problem got elevated to the Pope's desk. That it, that's when it finally sort of bubbled up out of the Secretary of State. Is like, well, shoot, we don't know what to do now. And it got, you know, he was being enough of he was putting enough pressure on the Vatican that they went all the way to the Pope to say, what are we supposed to do? And there have been accounts. Accounts. I'm not saying this is factually accurate. I'm saying there have been people who have said, well, and what went down was the Pope just said, look, just give the guy his money. I'll I'll take a picture with him and give him his money and just get this done with. Now, that's not to say the Pope understood what was going on and what this guy was doing to the Vatican when all of this was happening. But it does mean that they were now, for the first time on Wednesday this week, talking about in a Vatican court, well, wouldn't it be nice if the Pope could be a witness in the case? Now, legally, that's absolutely impossible. You can't subpoena the head of state who, you know, the prosecution is prosecuting in the name of the Pope and the court is meeting in the name of the Pope, uh, the judges exercise their judicial authority in delegation from the Pope. Like, there's like eight ways in which it's not possible to subpoena the Pope to make him a witness in the case. But what they were saying is, well, you know, princes and other great leaders, great figures, I think was the phrase used, but princes and other great figures um, have from time to time agreed to, you know, in the accorded in the courtesy of going to their residence, granting... Um, granting an interview with the judicial authorities where the judges would would only be allowed to respectfully pose certain questions. Basically saying, we're not suggesting that the Pope would have to do anything as sordid as submit to cross-examination by lawyers. But, you know, but maybe he would just tell us what he Tell us what he remembers. Just yeah, tell the judges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then even things that he may remember now that he may have forgotten at some point and exactly. far be it from anyone to judge. Okay. Do you guys want us to talk about one more thing? You wanted to talk about one more thing. I, we've been going for an hour and 10 minutes. I, I'm cool with I know I just have it. a deadline, but um, if you guys want us to talk about one more thing, press one on your phone now. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody did it. Okay. This is one other thing that I noticed at the U.S. Bishops Conference that I think is worth talking about now, that I think is worth noting. Wouldn't that be cool, actually, if we could make a choose-your-own-adventure show where it's like, if if you think Ed and JD should talk about X... We could. You know, All we'd have tra- to do is live broadcast this and do Twitter polls as we went. We could totally no, do that. but even that, we could record a bunch of segments that were not... That were sort of out of sequence, you know, and it would be like, if you think Ed and JD should talk about this next, press chapter skip twice. If you think Ed and JD should talk about that, press you press rewind four times. If you're totally done with this choose-your-own-adventure thing, you know... Turn off your podcast now? Whatever. Uh, maybe that would suck. I don't know. Anyway, um, one other thing that I noticed at the Bishop's Conference, I've been going to Bishop's Conference meetings for a long time. There weren't any for two years. I think it was a big deal. I, I do think, I mean, I'm not trying to be, but I do think that the, um, it is no surprise that this, uh, the ugly year of, of division among the Bishop's Conference over the Eucharistic Coherence document, it is no surprise that that happened in the second year 
in, in the second pandemic, imagine if we started counting from, from the pandemic. So like in year two of pandemic era, um, it is no surprise that it happened in largely the second era of the pandemic year when the bishops hadn't been together for a long time. We had what? We had the pandemic, the election, heightening tension, heightening tension among the bishops over the election, over the inauguration of Joe Biden, all of these things and not being in each other's present presence. I think human communion um, allows some of that stuff to be tamped down a little bit. So not surprising. And I do think that some of the good things that came out of this meeting, if good things came out of this meeting, were were spurred by the fact that bishops were in the same room and these kind of things. But I've been going to bishops' conference meetings for a long time. And, um, you know, bishops who disagree with each other traditionally have a, a, a way of disagreeing with one another and still enjoying at least a certain kind of uh, conviviality or a certain kind of um, respect, fraternal and mutual respect for one another. And, and generally speaking, until 2018, in my observation, generally speaking, the meetings were relatively, um, I don't want to say sleepy affairs, but relatively small affairs. 2018 changed that because McCarrick, but relatively small affairs in which, you know, um, there was not a whole lot of attention from press beyond the Catholic press. You know, there'd be somebody who was there from the secular papers and kind of anything done, but there wasn't the kind of intensity of attention that there was in 2018 or during the election cycle or this year with the Eucharistic Coherence document. Things were just a bit more... Uh, convivial and um, and one way you can see that is security has tightened up dramatically. You know, it used no, to there be were that SWAT you, guys wandering around were, the hotel. There were these security guys who they, who had you know tactical vests and big guns and these kind of things. And um, you know, it used to be that you could be going into something and say, "I forgot my badge, in my room." And you know, if the guy had seen you every day, you'd say, "Okay." But now, you know, you don't have your badge. You're going to be you're not going to be able to go, to go in and these kind of things. One of the things that has changed since 2018, or even since the last meeting. Uh, there is a and, – and I'm bringing this up not because I want to um, – want to exactly, but because I genuinely think that if this continues, it will change the tenor of the meeting, that this is a factor that has changed that will change the tenor of the meeting and could even change how much stuff bishops discuss in closed doors, uh, you know, behind closed doors and how much they discuss openly because I think it could so dramatically impact their experience of the meeting. Um, and it was – so um, churchmilitant.com is a website that is uh, kind of like a – they say that they do kind of journalism and um, commentary on the Catholic Church, and they're, they have been often criticized for being very, very critical of the bishops, and they have a perspective that is very, very, very conservative on very many things. And and uh, and I'm not saying something bad about conservatives. I'm saying I'm just saying just describing this. But they have a perspective that is very, 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 very conservative on very many things, and um, very, very, very critical of bishops, and to the point of calling, you know, saying that bishops are. All bishops are cowards, and bishops are complicit in the. You know, all bishops are complicit in the destruction of the church, and these kinds of things. Um, you know who they are. I don't know what I gave you all that background for. Church Militant. Uh, I think you're com. describing the two charitably. I just want to. I think I am too. Churchmilitant.com is, you know, by many accounts, is effectively a tabloid about the church, and with I think some lunacy conspiracy theory thrown in, and uh, providing a home for people who are otherwise under canonical sanction or discipline. And I think you know they're probably going to cut some piece of that and then use it because they criticize me a lot. Not, that's not why I'm talking about them right now. I'm talking. I usually ignore them. I'm talking about them right now because Church Milton brought to the bishops' meeting. I would say I don't know. Ed, we looked twenty staff members or so. Were they all staff? Yeah, people who work there. Oh, I didn't realize um, they all worked there. They were there. clad in um, church militant jackets with their church militant on the back and church militant hats and these kinds of things. And they were around a lot because they had a rally outside of the meeting and they did a lot of filming and things like that. They're not accredited as journal journalists, but they were staying in the hotel where it's the meeting because was. they're not journalists. They were staying in the me thing where the meeting was and they were in the restaurant a lot, in the bar a lot. And 
And and one of the things that I noticed, and they actually talk about it on their website, was that they were frequently going up to bishops who were, you know, going to the bathroom or going down to get breakfast or something. Generally speaking, you know, when journalists are at a meeting like that, uh, it's understood that there's a time when you can ask questions and a protocol for asking questions and that, um, you know, there's a, there's an, an agreement that we're all occupying the same space. But it's called lobby a, protocol. It's as old as, as the as press. A, but yeah, as a matter of protocol, you know, we won't request an interview unless we do it through the through the channels for requesting an interview and we'll appreciate that you are staying in this hotel and have to be permitted to be a human and eat your breakfast and these kinds of things. Um, but I noticed that this group would frequently, you know, find bishops who are waiting to go out to dinner with someone in the lobby or waiting for a meeting to start and just start asking them, would you give communion to Biden? Would you give communion to Biden? Why did you, you know, wh- why aren't you being courageous on this? Um, these kinds of things, these very antagonistic, well, the, these sets of questions that were very antagonistic frequently. We're in the, we're in the restaurant going up to bishops, you know, um, Voris talks in one of his things about how he was in the buffet line and he was asking bishops, why are you, uh, why aren't you being courageous? Why are you selling out the faith or something like that? That's not an exact quote, but these kinds of things, he, he talks about it. And that's a breach of the protocol of this meeting or any meeting, in my observation, at which journalists and principals are in the same place. And there's an expectation that you will understand that there's space that's on the record and space that's not on the record, just as a matter of human courtesy. That and it's called lobby rules. It's as old it's, as the right, exactly. Yeah. And so that was not observed by this large group of people who were there um, and who were talking to bishops, you know, asking bishops things in times when they were just being, you know, having their own time. And, um, and as a consequence of that, I do think that's part of the reason you had more security. There were times when kind of um, security was escorting bishops to places and um, the environment some bishops told me, you know, it just became more tense for them because it was difficult to have a cup of coffee or, you know, to talk in the lobby or meet with a friend or something like that. So the environment just became more tense for them. And I bring that up because I wonder if that experience will, in fact, shape how much bishops have an executive set, you know, meet an executive session relative to how much they'll meet in public meetings, how much transparency there will be in about what happens in executive session, these kinds of things, because just ratcheting up the intensity of being at the event, it seems to me would engender a position of defensiveness. And that position of defensiveness could impact these kind of policy things that we've been talking about throughout this, throughout this meeting. So it was a very, you know, it was a very different environment than previous meetings. And this is one of the reasons uh, why, and I think a significant one that will actually impact kind of what the rules and contours of the meeting and even tone of the meeting are going forward. Because it was, I know for bishops, you know, frustrating or tough or, you know, irritating. Yeah. Maybe it will inspire them to have the meeting elsewhere in future and not in a one of the most in a secure un- undisclosed location or something. Well, no, we could just be somewhere that, you know, doesn't provide quite so much accommodation for people. Yeah, so I only bring it up because I think it's worth watching what's going to happen with that. And and it was really it really was a sea change, and um, you know one that I think could impact the access of the whole church to to hear from the bishops. Because I think it just puts them in a defensive posture that's different from the way I, that I agree with you. Know. I mean the the well I don't know what they what they would say is they would say well you trade politeness for access right um, oh, you know God's you sake. want I, to be I, able to attend the meeting so you're polite to them well I. I, I suppose, yes, I want to be able to be credentialed at the meeting G- so I can no. do my job. Um, no one, but uh, as of a all of people, courtesy, we do not need to demonstrate that we are willing to play tough with the USCCB. <laughs> I, right. I agree. Come on. I agree. I'm not going to. I agree. Right? I agree. But uh, yeah, as a matter of human courtesy, but I want to do do a matter of human courtesy because I also want to be a human. Like there's, you know, there's a way of uh, 
recognizing kind of what the accept, generally accepted protocols are for these things that is that 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 matters. And um, and if that continues, you know, if that if that kind of thing becomes the sort of um, ordinary mode of the meetings, I, I do think it could significantly change policies and restrict access and these kinds of things too. Yeah. So. Well, there were. I, the Beastie Boys put it best, JD. There were altogether too many rappers, and there's still not enough MCs. <laughs> so anyway, that was my last observation from the meeting. I'm sure we'll keep talking about it. This interesting executive session on on um, on the afternoon of Tuesday that we don't know what it was about yet. I I myself am interested to find out what it was about, um, and we shall see if we do. Um, but uh, you know, it's the feast of Christ the King on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good feast. Blessed feast to you, Ed. And to you. And uh, I don't know if we're... Um, are we going to make a show next week? It's Thanksgiving. We'll probably make one earlier in the week. We'll make a show early in the week. So you guys can count on that. Yeah, we're, I want to be absolutely clear. We, we're we not working Thanksgiving. No, no, no. Unless okay. I haven't. Yeah, great. Did you just... All right. Wait. <laughs> Thank you. The Holy See has a custom of not caring that it's American Thanksgiving and then dropping some kind of a thing. So no, the Holy See has a custom it. of using his takeout the trash day when they think the American press won't look. <laughs> uh, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief, JD Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon, and Blessed Feast of Christ the King and uh, Gobble, Gobble, Gobble. One, two,